Artscape is produced on the traditional Coast Salish territories of the Songhees, the Kwanan-speaking peoples, and the wasanish senakotan speaking peoples. Artscape is a production of CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, and is made possible with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Now in its third season, Artscape seeks to investigate the diverse arts and cultural landscape around us. This episode is produced by Pascal Sabine Ricard and explores sights and sounds. Sights and Sounds is an exploration of human imagination, creation, and deception. Have you ever thought a fox cry sounded like a woman's scream? Or a peacock's call like a cat's meow? This is our perception of those situations. Our external experiences are expressed through chemical and physical sensors in our body, traveling through our spinal cord to our brain. Perception is the ability to see, hear, or become aware of something through the senses. The normal limits to human perception. The state of being or process of becoming aware of something through the senses. For example, the perception of pain. Perception is recognition, awareness, consciousness, a comprehension, our perception of our own limitations. It is a way of regarding, understanding, or interpreting something, a mental impression. This is our central nervous system at work, and it is a philosophical process. At the end of a neural firing, we become aware. We depend a great deal on our senses every day and expect that what they tell us is accurate but we also experiment with them by altering our mental states. What happens when our senses are deceived? To answer this question, I asked three local audiovisual performative artists to share one piece of art each that I took to you, the public, and asked the simple question, what does this picture sound like to you? We will be hearing from each artist what their art sounded like in contrast to the viewer and two University of Victoria professors to expand our idea of sound, music, art, and perception. I encourage you to look at the three pictures and answer my question, what does this picture sound like to you as well, before listening to the rest of this podcast. The questions so often asked go something like this. What is music or art, and what makes something music or art? How do we define the creative work of a human from the art and music of nature? And what influences our belief that something is or is not art? I spoke with Dr. Andrew Schloss, professor in the UVic Computer Music Department, about his work on the radio drum, sonification, and the rise of art and music being intertwined with technology. Dr. Schloss is a percussionist, mathematician, and artist. He has played the radio drum with Leon Thurman and the interactive installation artist Trimpen. He has seen the rise of computer music and art and continues to add to the ever-growing field. Do you mind giving us a breakdown of what the computer music realm is about and how it began? Incredibly complicated, and it took, you know, in a way, centuries to figure it out. And the reason I say centuries is that even though the field itself is is only one century or less old. Um, the, some of the theory behind it goes all the way back to, to some mathematicians from like Fourier, for example, who analyzed 
who, who did the basic foundation for analyzing frequencies. But anyway, so yeah, the, the technical things behind computer music are, are daunting. And, um, but what's amazing is that since I was a graduate student working with other people who were really pioneers, um, since that time, many of the things that, that we were working on that were very obscure and barely worked are now part of daily life. I mean, absolutely. Just all kinds of things. For example, sound hounds. You know, you hear a song and you hold up your phone and it right. identifies the sound, the song, and then it actually takes you to the song and lets you buy it, is now what we call music information retrieval. But it's now part of everyday life. People don't even think about it. And of course, the, the most prominent probably would be speech recognition, which we also worked on, where you talk into your phone and if you say weather today, it'll get it right pretty much every time. And if you say, please set the timer for 12 minutes, you know, all those things work perfectly. Mm -hmm. If you try to dictate a letter, well, it's not perfect. But speech recognition and uh, transcription of speech and music are both, you know, miles of, of where, from where they were. They started, it was just really hard to do anything. Um, I remember experiments uh, at Stanford when they were uh, doing vision. They had a card out in the parking lot and they had these cones, you know, those orange cones. And they would put this card out there with a video camera with a big cable running into the machine room to the mainframe. And the, <laughs> the cart would get data from the camera and it would sit there for hours while the computer was thinking, 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 thinking. And then finally it would run the cart over the, the uh, cone. But that was the very, very first examples of people trying to do computer vision. Um, that's in the late 70s. So now it's extraordinary. You know, we have drones and we have uh, self-driving cars that almost work. And, uh, you know, really it's mind-blowing how far everything has come since then. What an ever-evolving field to be a part of and to see grow. I think that you also are a great representation of that uh, based on the way you have combined your love for mathematics and also music as seen in some of the projects you have engaged in like the water sculpture as well as you know utilizing sonification. Yeah no it really is amazing how you know there's so much math there's so much mathematical stuff in science but then of course there's art and so I like to mix them up and um, and you have to have some technical skills to do this stuff but you also have to have creative ideas and so and you know there's all kinds of different people working in different areas so for example the sculpture you're talking about is actually it's in false creek and uh the, what happened was that the sculptor who i've known for probably 40 years because i met him in seattle way way back um his name is buster simpson and um he got a commission to build a sculpture in false creek which he built quite a few years ago and he tried to uh make the sculpture um active in some way that is to say it floats in the water and as it goes up and down it measures the position of the sculpture and so on and then it wasn't really working properly but then when the olympics happened in vancouver there was suddenly some funding to sort of upgrade the art so i guess buster got some funding from the olympic committee and then he uh, asked me and a couple of friends to work on the sound for that so the way it works is that um, this is an example of sonification which really does combine art and science. So what happens is we measure the position of the sculpture, which is floating in the water. So it goes up and down when the tides come in and out, and it also goes up and down if there's a boat going by with a wake. It also turns if there's a tide going in or out, you know, in terms of the direction of the flow of the water. So there's the height of the water and the flow and so on. Anyway, we take this data and we transmit it to a computer on shore 
And then what, what I did was I sonified the data, which means I took the data, which is not audible, it's just, it's just numbers. And you could look at it on a screen. For example, you could look at a graph of the tide and you'd see it going up and down twice a day. And you would see patterns, of course, because the tide is repetitive. But it also, you know, high tide is a little different time each day. It's shifting. It's not the same every day. So what I did was I, he had already collected a lot of data. So I used that to sort of prime the pump. And then I sped up the data from the motion of the sculpture by a factor of, I forget now, maybe 2 million. You have to f speed it up a lot because our ears can't hear sounds they're lower than 20 cycles per second. And so you can imagine uh, the speed of the float going up and down is way, 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 way below the hum range of human hearing. Um, it's about maybe 100,000 times lower than human hearing. So, or maybe a little more than that. So anyway, I sped it up by a million or two. And the, now, when I say a million or two, you might wonder, well, gee, what, you know, what's the difference? Well, the difference is an octave, because two million is one octave higher than one million, an octave meaning a two-to-one ratio. What I'm saying here is that the science is there, but you make decisions that are based on aesthetics. So if you want the tone to be higher, then you speed it up more, and there's no right answer. So maybe I had it at a million, and I thought, no, that's too low. So I doubled the speed and got it up an octave, as an example. So then I, I listened, then I could listen to the tide. And then, uh, you know, if it's not active enough, then you come up with some other things to make it sound more lively. So I did add, for example, a comb filter where you add the sound to itself with a slight delay. And that creates a kind of interesting timbre. So anyway, so basically this sculpture is um, broadcasting its position 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we then take that data and and uh, create sound um, and you can listen to it all the time it's never ends because the data never ends and the tide never stops and so one of the things I like about these natural phenomena like the tide or the wind or the light from the sun the clouds all these things you can measure they become sort of magical sources of information that are really hard to simulate um, you can you know fake data but it's not the same as real data so I love using uh, natural things. I did that also in uh, the library in Seattle. Uh, another example of sonification um, where I had all these anemometers on the roof. Of, this is the Ballard branch of the Seattle Public Library. The anemometers were all spinning at slightly different speeds around the roof, and they're catching the wind in a little bit different ways. So I took each uh, little anemometer, which is spinning, and I turned each one of those into a tone. And then when you add them together, you get this really interesting pulsating tone that um, gets higher in pitch as you as the wind blows faster. And also, I I added to it a little uh, routine so that when you blow, when the wind is blowing harder, you hear harmonics, which is sort of like blowing across a bottle, sort of like a simulation of that. That's another example of sonification. Sonification is is really interesting, a really fertile area that has been around l longer than people think. I think it was first at least proposed in the 50s. So the idea was, you know, 
well, there's scientific versions and there's artistic versions and then there's everything in between. But I'll start with the scientific version. So let's say you're looking at a graph of something and you can see, let's say, the price of corn or something and it's going up and then it goes down. And you can look at it and you can zoom in and, hear, and see, you know, the prices over the last 12 hours or you can zoom out and look over the prices for the last 10 years. And, you know, our eyes are, are designed to look at one thing at a time and they're good at looking at graphs. However, a, a sort of habit developed over time over many years like centuries of looking at data with your eyes and and I think the reason was there was no technological method to listen to data really so once computers got fast enough um, people I think somebody at MIT I forget who it was proposed the idea that we could actually listen to data so that for example the price of corn well you could sonify it by just making it into a pitch and you could hear the pitch going up or down now that probably would be pretty uninteresting to listen to, and also you might not learn anything from that. It's just an example. But a much better example of something that is incredibly useful, that is an example of sonification, even though I don't think that the inventors realized it, is something called the pulse oximeter, which is what they stick on your finger. It's a little like a clothespin kind of, but you put on your finger. And when it's uh, clamped on your finger lightly, it doesn't hurt or anything, it measures the pulse, the speed of your pulse, and it also measures how much oxygen you have in your blood. So that's why it's called the pulse oximeter. But it's a sonifying instrument because instead of displaying your pulse and your oxygen on a screen to be looked at, it just plays a signal, which is a beep, and it beeps every time your heart beats, and the pitch of the beep goes up or down according to how much oxygen you have. So what's fabulous about this, what's so important is that if you're a surgeon, for example, you can't take your eyes off of the patient. You have to be staring at the incision or whatever you're doing. But you can hear the condition of your patient without any effort at all. It's so intuitive. So the idea is to use sound to display information. So that's the idea. Now, the, what's interesting about this is that you can try to help people visualize data using sonification. We call that an auditory display. But you can also, as an artist, you can simply transform data from one world into another world. Sound does affect people and um, you know sometimes you can do it on purpose and sometimes not and so yeah there are a lot of kind of semi mysterious things that happen um, there's no answer in the back of the book you you just try it and you see what it sounds like and it may sound beautiful it may sound ugly it may be useful it may not be you just experiment. sounds and music produced by and from the data Andrew collected, wouldn't one view only be seen as lines of numbers, 
with the meaning of tidal activity and yet it is also perceived as beautifully strange ambient music. Can we always be confident that our perception of something is the same for everyone? When I went out and interviewed local Victorians about what the visual art I presented sounded like, the responses were very divergent, but also at times shared similarities. We will be hearing what the perceived sound or music associated with each piece of art was before hearing the artists themselves, and lastly what the artist's auditory representation was. Be ready to compare what you thought the art sounded like. We will begin with local performative and sculptural artist Mish Beam, a University of Victoria English and Early Education Theatre graduate and the Minister of the Ministry of Casual Living. The image she provided was of a very recent wearable sculpture that was representing death in her play she co-wrote and directed called Funner Destroys Shakespeare as part of the Victoria Annual Fringe Festival. Sounds like wind. I don't know why. Sounds like uh, some sort of sheep, like uh, What's your I was thinking like? it sounds like. Last but not least, what does it sound like to you? Might sound like this. Misha's medium is puppetry or chapetry. So I've been involved with the ministry for about a year and a half. I was there for the transition we made after getting renovated from our last space, which was mm-hmm. our artist studios on Fort Street and Blanchard, right downtown. But now we have a new place in Vic West. And um, yeah, it's really cool and still have open studios if anyone out there is looking for an artist studio. For those that are not totally aware of what the Ministry of Casual Living is, in a nutshell, what is the sort of motto or focus and, um, you know, thing that the ministry does? Well, it is a collective of artists, and the main goal is to provide art shows to artists for free. And it's kind of underground, more influenced by street culture and youth and vibrant new artists. And yeah, the goal is to have art studios that can fund our our artist gallery. And so right now we're just working on getting our whole space to be a functioning studio and gallery space. Goal is that people don't have to pay for art shows and we can promote them and provide events around art and um, do this without having to ask the artists to pay for themselves we we just do it for them so my puppet company is junk time puppets and we've been around for about five years now and we do have a website it's basically a a wix website so we we didn't have to pay anything to make it but basically <laughs> just type junk time puppets into google and you'll find our website but yeah it's basically just radical a lot of like environmental puppetry that we toured around a lot up north in BC and it was a voice for activism a lot of the time in the beginning and I am a self-taught puppet maker and it just blossomed from me experimenting with different ways of making puppets and now we've done so many things we've performed at music festivals and 
every year we have different projects. This year we were in the Fringe Festival in Victoria. So it was Fun or Destroy Shakespeare. And it was me, Shoy Boy, who are kind of the main puppet people in Junktime Puppets. And then my partner, John Dowdle, was also involved. And he's always kind of been a backup, weird, like performance artist element of the of the junk time crew nice and um yeah we kind of just we're kind of like loud crude sort of like catchy by surprise puppets and kind of like challenging the social norms of victoria i would think like kind of not your like quiet delicate like like sort of um like these these puppets are like pretty loud and and like in your face and we do like puppet hip-hop um and the name junk time it's because we make them out of like found objects and trash dumpster dived material. Now, the piece of art that we got to use for Sights and Sounds was one of the puppets that was at the Fringe Festival. So we called our puppets Chuppets in the Fringe Festival. We did that because we being really sick of like, oh, another puppet show. Puppet, puppet, (laughs) puppet. Well, why did Jim Henson get to call his Muppets? He just freaking got sick of calling them puppets and he was like i'm gonna make a new word so that's what we did and we called them our chuppet show and the main chuppet was this black somewhere between puppet and costume i would say it is a chuppet and it's a structure that a person would wear go inside of and behave in the manner that I asked them to do so shoy boy played death it's like yellow big bird with yellow feathers coming off except it's black pieces of black fabric coming down and dead when i was building it i was imagining the ring the woman with the hair blocking her whole face and body and like that immediately draws you into like this death or like spirit woman spirit walker like faceless sort of hairy thing from the other side i i was trying to say in the play i was telling the actors like don't call it death let's not like refer to it as anything and just see like if people get it and then afterward someone uh, brought it to my attention that i had put death on the poster like over the <laughs> over it anyway so like it kind of gave it away if you saw the poster but yeah i yeah, was yeah. trying to keep it be creature of foreshadowing and if you've read shakespeare you know that death is a central theme and you know along with romance and all sorts of very obvious shakespearean themes death is a big part of his work and mm-hmm. so we we wanted to kind of play with different themes of Shakespeare and um, and also foreshadowing is like something he really does a lot. So I wanted to play with foreshadowing and having this kind of like ghost death thing come out at different points. It was a romance and a tragedy altogether. And um, it's 
I guess just very like like the character was kind of um stalking both my character and John's character I guess but really there was this point in where like uh me I play a librarian and John played a janitor and we worked at the Emily Carr library and um we meet in the basement and we proceed to flirt with each other and then we decide we're going to go inside of a, a Shakespeare book and it's the complete works of Shakespeare and the book itself is really alive because this book has just been around in um, with John for years and he's used it to do all kinds of performances. At, he did one at UVic at the Fine Arts Building that was first time he did fun or destroy Shakespeare and it was basically just pulling things out of the fine arts dumpster and taking them to that big sculpture of wood with chains and just performing with like trash and the book and reciting Shakespeare verse for seven hours straight and that was like the original fun or destroy Shakespeare Sweet but wow. yeah so this play we do it's more of like a romance where there's two people and it's more of a theater piece like a play with a beginning middle and end and the middle is all about us going inside and exploring this book but there was this idea of that I really wanted to explore which was um, sort of the rise and fall of the artist or the rise and fall of an artist particularly, I guess in this play it was a male artist, dominated by his um, his view of himself and sort of as an artist often you meet like musicians and people, you might really like their music and then you meet them in person and then you're like, wow, they're not very nice. They're kind of self-obsessed. And that can happen as an artist. So it was kind of, I wanted to explore like, this person who starts as a very humble character of a janitor and is incredibly humble not even really aware of his own artistic talent and then inside the book kind of becomes this like Shakespeare aficionado theater genius like word master and just gets so overwhelmed by his own talent and like sort of self-absorption that he loses his love in the process. The discordant and otherworldly sounds that Mish made to represent death not only capture feelings but also tell us more about what death meant in her play. Our second artist was audiovisual and performative artist Laura Gildner, currently in the University of Victoria Visual Arts program and completed her artist residency in Venice just this summer, 
Laura is a very active member of the Victoria art scene, completing three different public installations and performances over the last six months, including the Integrated Arts Festival. The image she provided was of a very recent still life series called Objective Sacrifice. The still life echoes much of her current work and the driving force behind her work. It sounds like a spaceship, like a crunchy spaceship. Okay. It sounds like when your head is underwater in a bathtub and you can hear like stuff like tinking against the side of the bathtub. Sounds like entering a quiet, awkward space. Sounds like a little bit folky electronic. It looks like a funky dinner party. That's sound, right? It's very classical, but yeah, you know. I caught Laura on the phone while she was in Calgary at an art writing conference called Never the Same. Hey, Laura, can you give us a little background on what's happening at the conference? The keynote speaker is my favorite author, which is Chris Krause, who wrote, among many other things, I Love Dick, which is an art criticism text, but written in the language of fiction. Uh, there are some panels with artists, art writers, and art critics and that kind of thing. Just before even even classes started, you were still doing all kinds of stuff over the summer. I'm going to have to bring up Venice. Uh, you were there, and you were there in the past, actually, and so this was a continuation. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was super fortunate to be able to go to Venice in June to shoot a project um, that I had kind of initiated the year before. So it, it was a site-specific project using Madonna's 1984 video for Like a Virgin as the starting point. So that video was pretty influential when I was a kid. I have a sister who's 12 years older than me, so I watched a lot of kind of 80s Madonna. And she is on a gondola in Venice, uh, dancing around, singing Like a Virgin. So the project that I was working on there, I retraced the route based on the images from the video. And we went both by foot kind of beside the canal and on the gondola and retraced that route with people who consider themselves Venetians because a lot of people from Venice tell you there are no such thing as Venetians because it's a constructed city on the water. Um, almost, they feel almost like a Disneyland, you know? And so I was interviewing people who lived there who had actually never really been on a gondola or been in these kind of iconic places much because they t tend to avoid the tourist area of Venice. And using the, the video as kind of a starting point. So I was actually um, asking them about being touched for the very first time, but I wasn't, it didn't imply sexual touching. It could if they went there, but I just kind of used that as a starting point um, to interview them about their personal connection to the space that they were living in and their interpersonal connections within that kind of constructed space that they um, grapple with calling home. And so, yeah, that's what I'm editing right now. I'm working on. Also, on top of that, you were a contributing artist at the Integrated Arts Festival as well. Yeah, so um, Integrated Art Festival is a really fantastic festival at the end of the summer every year. They have a few featured artists, but they work with other artist-run centers in town to kind of create like an art crawl. So we were at 636 Fort Street, which is kind of underneath the Bay Center, uh, which is where they had a temporary gallery with the featured artists, which was really, really fun. But then, like, other galleries around town, like Open Space, the Art Gallery, Greater Victoria, 5050, they all participate in it as well. So it kind of becomes a celebration of art in Victoria. And I guess the aim of the festival is just to kind of get the broader public aware of all the art that's happening here in Victoria, because we do have a pretty diverse art scene here. So for a city of this size, it's really great. I was very fortunate <laughs> to be one of the artists in Integrate, so I had some work in that. And then 
I also did a performance for Integrate that traveled around downtown Victoria. And what I did was I, it was called Public Displays of Affection. And I went around downtown interviewing strangers about kind of similar themes to what I was talking about in Venice, but I was interviewing them about um, personal connection to space. And so I just, I was looking for nondescript stories uh, that had either happened in the spaces we were moving through or, or kind of started there or had some sort of association with uh, downtown Victoria, but they weren't very linear or obvious. Like it wasn't like people were like, oh yeah, I was sitting on this bench right here. You know, like it was, I was getting them to kind of continue talking and I would take excerpts from those interviews. So they're kind of like anecdotes. And then my friends, Lana and Courtney and I uh, memorized verbatim excerpts from the interviews and then <laughs> put choreographed dance moves to each word as we moved through downtown and interacted with the architecture. So sometimes we were like doing the limbo through uh, the chains underneath the parking garages or going up the stairs or kind of like using architecture as, as a stage for performance really. And yeah, and then people would start following us. People started joining in on the tour. It was pretty funny. So yeah, that was a performance called PDA. Plus, on top of all of that, you did the Still Life series this year that was used for Sights and Sounds. Yes, those photos are, they're photos, first of all, and they're pretty large. So the actual size of them is 44 by 30 inches of the printed photos. They're part of a series, that, so they go together, but they are quite different. Uh, so the first one kind of has a black background um, and a purple um, surface on it. It has a mannequin torso with a white head cap on the head. The other one is a little bit closer up. It's another still life uh, with kind of a yellow background and some greens and um, gray. There's lots of, um, there's a metronome. There's kind of a boob, uh, like a fake like dress ball in the shape of a boob. Flowers. There's the inside of a clock radio that I tore apart. There are actually two images in a series uh, called Objective Sacrifice. And I had been researching the history of the still life image as part of this project. And one thing that I found really interesting is it's kind of one of the um, most overlooked genres in art criticism. And so it's generally not discussed. And when it is, it's kind of treated with ambivalence. And it's one of the earliest recorded forms of art making, but it's constantly overlooked. And this author, his name is Norman Bryson. He was saying that he believes that it goes directly back to the oppression of women. You know, objects in the, the still life are usually kind of of a domestic nature over many eras. Like they create a cultural field or kind of like the idea of a cultural memory. Um, this guy, he was saying that it's kind of like human legacy made visible because we, when we see a still life, we kind of inherently recognize all these objects and understand that that's kind of a part of the still life tradition. And that's where they become overlooked because we're so, we understand that that's what it is. But he was saying that, you know, the, they kind of, these objects are usually stand in for the body and they're always kind of temporal in nature. Like there's always something that like a plant or a piece of fruit, something that's going to die, that's going to decompose and kind of mirroring the body in that way. But he was saying a lot about kind of the quiet power in the still life and its ability to kind of subvert cultural norms just by flipping in different details in there and seeing how the genre can evolve from that. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, I was reading a lot about at the same time, um, all these female artists that I, you know, looked up to and really admire. And there was a study done, I guess, 
about five years ago that I, this is where I kind of came up with the idea. I read about it and it was actually kind of taking, you know, people like Eva Hess or Merritt Oppenheim, people who are really, really big artists in their time who have since died, when they die and have a retrospective or something, they're usually labeled, like they're kind of keywords that they're labeled and one of them is forgotten. And I think that's hilarious because these are people who had shows at the MoMA or like achieved success while they were living but suddenly they die and their label's forgotten. And that's usually kind of a marketing term that critics or reviewers or galleries will use to promote their show, whereas male artists will not get that kind of, they'll say they'll be celebrated or, you know, that kind of thing. So forgotten is a really interesting term that I don't believe is true, but it's kind of being used to hype up assumed visibility to an artist that already had visibility, which I think is an interesting thing. So I, I took some artists that I really admired who have since died and have kind of fallen into that category of at some point being labeled forgotten to make fun a little bit of that phenomena, I guess, in art criticism. I created these still lives kind of poking fun at that idea. So they're all kind of inspired from the works of artists who have fallen into that category. But at the same time, I'm kind of saying with these still lives that, you know, there is inherent power in putting those little messages in there. After reading that book about the still life, it kind of got me thinking about how I could combine those two ideas. And how would that translate into an auditory representation? What would they sound like to you? I have a pretty clear idea of what they would sound like. Time traveling voyeurism. (laughs) So like to me, when I look at them, it makes me think about overhearing conversations and conversations specifically that have happened, you know, a few decades ago. The distant conversations, music, and ambient noise paint an auditory picture of Laura's art, a still life in motion. Christine White, local audiovisual and performative artist and co-founder of the Pedal Box Mobile Gallery, was the third contributing artist to Sights and Sounds. A Camosun College visual arts program graduate, Christine is also an experimental musician, but her focus has been on interactive installation. The image she provided was of the Tea Party interactive installation that has been an ongoing project for three years and was recently displayed at Burning Man. Uh, Sounds like waves, so it's like... Sounds like like a wilderness indie without guitar. Like drums, like just like boom, boom. Okay, sweet. Looks like an ambient, like, waves rolling off rocks. Thankfully, my voice came back. What yeah. happened to your voice? The dust in the desert. When did you get back? And making out with strangers. <laughs> Are we recording right now? <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, I love being able to share what I do. Uh, without everyone being a part of it, it's really nothing, so. Okay, Christine, so how did the tea party start? Okay, so it started out in 2014 when I was invited to do a piece on Pedalbox Gallery, which is a gallery on a bike trailer, which then led to me being invited to help facilitate the gallery space with John Dowdle. It is performative, and there's this whole service that goes on. I'm, I'm serving people the tea, 
No one's helping themselves. I serve it to them. And then I sit down and I connect with people. And that's a huge part of my work. It's actually my mission statement is to connect people through art. So sort of to involve myself into a piece is really important. Another thing I've really learned over doing large scale installations is even the process of making the work and setting it up with other people. You know, for the most part, I'm a solo artist. I've never really had an official team, but I always invite people to come help me. I Even the Tea Party project, it there's a second trailer that goes along with that project. I need a second person to tow that trailer on a bike. And I find that even though a lot of my history is like the solo artist, so much of what I do, I need people to work with me or or I need guests to enjoy the work to fulfill its purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I've really loved learning about is just realizing how much I love working with people. I remember coming across some photos of early tea party installations at Cavity. So that was like a side performance that was inspired by the first time I set up the tea party project. Oh, cool. And I had taken a bunch of audio that day and made a sound collage of 15 minutes. Oh, and yes. that audio I played while doing a performance piece that night where I had my encyclopedia which has been with me ever since 2014 Tea Party Project it's I forget what series of letters but it has the words like civilization and colonization in there and so that piece I actually ripped out pieces from the encyclopedia and was eating it and also brewed tea out of the pages and then served people tea in the audience with the fancy teacups. So the tea party is also what ended up going to Burning Man. So a few years pass and, you know, I've been on this art journey for a while, making interactive art installations. I've always wanted to do something for Burning Man that in a way was kind of an end goal for me to make it there. It's kind of like the grandmother of all interactive art festivals, although you're not supposed to call it a festival. (laughs) Last year, I went to my first regional event Burn in the Forest, which is the Vancouver Burning Man. Yeah, and that's where I discovered the Empress. Totally based on the hotel here. It's quite hilarious because it has that whole like colonial vibe of, you know, to the queen and, and this sort of thing. The very fancy tea lounge where guests are invited in and the people who are a part of the camp will serve you tea and fancy teacups, which is a change because the Burning Man community is all about bringing your own cup. So it's pretty cool that you get this extra service with like the fancy teacup and, and that's it. They just serve tea and cookies. But everyone's dressed up very Victorian style uh, and steampunk. And the inspiration behind that theme camp was to go to the Big Burn in Nevada, Burning Man, and have something represent Victoria. So the fact that you're incorporating Victorian style kind of plays that role and then a lot of tourists who come to Victoria are very familiar with the Empress Hotel and my interpretation of it was kind of like oh yeah to the queen but also queen like it's kind of making fun of it and that really resonated with me because that is what I'm exploring in the tea party on a bike trailer which I then decided, okay, this is the theme camp I must go to Burning Man with for the first time, and this is going to be the project that I do. So this summer has been all about exploring that more. And I even got a a small grant from Kindle Arts Society, which is the Burning Man Victoria community, 
and they gave me some support to put into the project and I took it to the Victoria Regional the other world event which is in Pachina Bay up island and that is the image that I provided version 2.0 yeah. of the tea party project on the beach Pachina Bay and Christine what did the tea party project represent for you yeah so at the time I was sort of thinking about what's my relationship with my ancestors what is my place here as a settler and how can I explore that in my artwork and growing up my mom and I always had tea parties using the fancy teacups and every time I saw my grandma she would always serve me tea so I feel like I've always had this very warm connection with tea and I also find it very interesting that you know the UK British culture is all about that tea time Mm -hmm. but that tea technically came from China so there's sort of this really weird colonized version of tea and of course the whole reason why I'm here is through colonization so I I wanted to be able to explore that through the project and I'm also very I really do quite like the aesthetic stuff like Marie Antoinette type frilly fancy dresses I find it really fun and I like dressing up like that like lace and all that kind of stuff so because a part of my work is so visual I wanted to be able to incorporate those visual components into it so there is a lot of that high aesthetic but that being said I did hope to deconstruct this idea of being civilized and like what is this idea of being civilized and how did that come about through colonialism and I what I really learned this year especially through the Burning Man community was what I've been doing is actually the process of decommodifying tea what's interesting is that the European background of tea was very expensive high-class item that wasn't available to the poor and it was highly taxed And there even ended up being a black market of tea. I think that being able to bring a fancy tea party out into the public space on the street, offer people tea for free, no matter who you are, is a rebellious act against the queen and against colonialism and all that kind of thing. Kind of bringing that power into ourselves and just that sharing with one another. How do you imagine the tea party sounding? Well, definitely the sounds of bicycles, the sounds of chains moving, the tires against the pavement, maybe squeaky brakes, uh, the trailer and everything on it clanking around while it's moving through space. Uh, Maybe the sounds of a fire crackling to feel that warmth and comfort and hominess. But you could also hear the piano playing in the background because it's kind of regal. Hear the sounds of a ship docking and being roped up because that's the tea getting delivered to Europe from China on a boat in 1660 by the Dutch. <laughs> the sounds of, of heels clinking on a marble floor, a and pearl necklace breaking and the pearls falling onto the floor. The British Raj. Winnipeg, Manitoba. California. New York. Vancouver. Taken over by the Dutch. Victorian settler heritage. Yeah. We want to make it grow, so that's a good thing too, and we wouldn't be here without that. Like canes and stuff. Colonization is frequently fostered by discontent with conditions at home, while a certain acquaintance 
with political freedom is desirable. Generally regarded as the earliest colonists, although there was certainly something of the kind before them. Spike trailer. Big rats. The CRD. The Youth Council. Trackside Gallery. Festival. Open space. Someone could do whatever they want. Someone could be doing, yeah. um... Well, no. Okay. You have to buy something or you can't be here. The sounds of the street, clinking teacups, and spoken word immerse us in Christine's world. We can feel where her art is taking us. I spoke with Dr. Randall Tonks, professor in the UVic Psychology Department and psychology instructor at Mohsen College, about his work on identity theory, music and psychology, and his current research on the topic of what music represents home. Dr. Tonks is a flautist, a spiritualist, and an academic. His work and heart lies in the discovery of identity, with a great focus on Eric Erickson. As an academic, my graduate research has historically been in the area of identity and acculturation, and so it's how we think of ourselves, and so partly a developmental model coming from the work of the great psychologist Eric Erickson, who's arguably the most important identity theorist in the world of psychology over the last century. And so um, building on his work, I then started to look at how uh, youth in particular, immigrant youth, go through the identity process of trying to figure out who they are within uh, a world of complex cultural dynamics. And so when you've got uh, youth coming from a family that is, their traditional culture is different from the host culture, they have to, in a sense, live in two different worlds. And so how they find their sense of identity in the complexities of cultural dynamics and change at home, at school, and so on is just a, a really sort of dynamic and, and for me a very fascinating kind of world to live in. So I've been researching that for a long, long time now and um, that's taken me into a couple of other areas. One of them in particular, uh, acculturative stress. So a lot of people when they go through this acculturative uh, experience, they get uh, various degrees of stress, some more mildly and others much more severely as part of the identity challenges that happen. And so I've been researching that and exploring, um, developing a questionnaire, actually a short survey for, in particular, international students to look at uh, their levels of stress and what are the kinds of characteristics that, that lead to more or less stress for them. And uh, so I've been doing that. And in the meanwhile, partly through doing the music psychology course, I came to become very much aware of uh, emotions and music and how uh, music can be a way to change or alter our emotions uh, in different kinds of ways. And so I began this project, I guess about uh, four years ago now, looking at uh, music as it gives rise to emotional experience, in particular music that makes us or gives us a sense of home. And so I use it in a very broad and vague kind of way. So I've been asking people, uh, select uh, five songs of music that give you a sense of home, whatever that means to you. And so we've been asking people to do that in an open-ended kind of way. And then the second part of our survey has been to uh, ask people to then rate those songs or a couple of those songs on a variety of different emotions so that we can get a sense for what kinds of emotions those musical pieces are giving to these people when uh, they listen to them, or at least when they remember having listened to them. Now, with your identity history, this is where I want to dig into a bit about, about deception and, yeah. and 
and our perceptions of different things. You've mentioned that you do a lot of work on communication styles. Yeah, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, I do this course on intercultural communication, and so uh, it blends in with my, uh, my other cultural work. And so it's really looking at how when uh, we find ourselves in an intercultural situation or circumstance, we've got two or more people from different cultures, how they come together to form communication. And of course, communication and language and identity is typically formed within a given culture. But then when you take people from two rather different cultures, and if they've never had much experience with people from other cultures prior to that, come together and have to communicate or share information or express their own identities to each other, uh, there's a lot of confusion or misinterpretation that can come in there. Mm -hmm. And we also see, for example, um, in the world of communication, that there's our uh, sort of implicit rules in terms of how and when we do communicate certain aspects of ourselves in terms of openness or disclosure or holding back or maintaining face or a number of different kinds of things. And so this gets into the behavioral or the nonverbal components of communication, but also in terms of how much uh, do we tell others and private, personal information out in public and maintain sort of this boundary between the inner and outer. And so that's perhaps where deception may creep in or maybe an important part of culture where you, in a sense, uh, are being somewhat deceptive, if you will, by not expressing how you really feel because you're following the rules or the context of the culture to behave in a certain way. When we do look at sound and emotion, motion, for example, we can see that there are certain patterns that come along that seem to be perhaps cross-cultural, but a lot of, you know, the meaning, again, that, that comes from sound or art or other kinds of, of uh, language expressions, if you will, uh, is a lot of the time shaped by our cultural experience. And so we expect certain kinds of sounds to go along with uh, scenes or situations and so on. And so given a, a particular image, people may sort of conjure up the kinds of, of uh, sonic experience that they'll have as they would imagine being a part of that particular scene. And I think it would be really fascinating to do this kind of a project across different cultures and perhaps with more ambiguous kinds of photographs to see what kinds of things may emerge as a result of that. I, I remember a number of years ago there was a psychological study done, I think this is by some Gestalt psychologists, who had uh, shown some uh, different shapes to people and asked them uh, which uh, is the, the shape that goes along with these different names. And I think one of them was and the other one was uh, Ulame or something like that. I can't remember what the second one was. but So the, the one name had sort of more sharp kinds of sounds to it, and the other one had this sort of soft. And when showing uh, some just abstract images, people were very consistent on Takame was the one with the sharp angles in it, and the Ulame or whatever it was uh, was the one with the much more rounded and curvy kinds of things. So we create these associations, I think, to a large degree based upon our past experiences. But I think also that the actual sounds themselves give rise to a certain kind of experience that we may have. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, this idea of the images and, and the art, and sort of, or the, the sounds rather, um, how sounds can emerge out of images. I recently, uh, last semester, had a student in my music psychology class do a little research project uh, that was sort of the opposite. And what she did was she played uh, pieces of music to people and had them draw. And so just gave them a blank piece of paper and a bunch of uh, markers and just had them draw. And it was fascinating to see some consistent themes that emerged within them. And the music 
music, I think it was symphonic, and there's sort of this sort of dynamic flow to the music. And quite interestingly, people made these dynamic drawings with lots of flow and movement within those drawings as well. So it was quite the flip side of this, but along the same lines in terms of how art can be an expression of music. Yeah. Can we say that there is a healing factor to it? For sure, no. I've got, I've got a fair bit to say on that, actually. In my own projects here, in terms of looking at stress and music, and so typically in, in, in the little peek that I've done into the data so far, what I've seen is that those people who are more highly stressed, they tend to rate music from home more in terms of agitation and anxiety. Not that those are high ratings, but they're higher than those who are less stressed. Likewise, those people who show much less stress have also come to demonstrate that their music from home ratings have much higher ratings than those otherwise in terms of happiness and serenity and these more positive emotions. So along those lines, we used in a therapeutic way, and yes, absolutely, there's a long tradition of art therapy that's been around since uh, arguably the work of Carl Jung, who used this in a very deep way to understand struggles that people have that they may not be able to articulate with words, but when you give them an opportunity to draw or to create some sort of artistic expression, they can let out some of their feelings, and then as a therapist, one can draw from that as a way to begin a conversation and then look at the series of drawings over time as they're going through therapy to look for changes in the kinds of expressions that are coming out. So likewise, there's a strong tradition of music therapy that's been emerging in the last number of years as well. And so this can be applied to a number of different kinds of areas. It's been used a lot in around um, children with uh, autism spectrum disorder because it's a, a mode for communication with them where they tend to not be verbal uh, uh, traditionally um, as well as using it therapeutically with seniors with dementia, uh, having uh, play music for them to help bring back memories, to stimulate their brains and so on. Um, but even as uh, myself and talking to people and, and, and looking around me and, and how I use music as well, is I tend to use music as a soothing source for myself to produce music. And so if I, you know, last year a good friend of mine died and, you know, I was kind of feeling the blues, literally, mm. and so I got my flute out and played some music and it was rank. It was like really nice. <laughs> nasty, rank kind of stuff I was playing, but it allowed me to let that emotion out and to express it in such a way that it was a positive expression rather than, you know, holding it in and, and having it lead to physiological symptoms of stress and so on and so forth. That's really great. Yeah. I, I, that's, I think it's that feeling, that emotional component is, you know, some people talk about our emotion system as an early uh, information uh, and detection system before we develop language and uh, higher cognition. And so it's an older part of our brain than our cognitive component uh, that, that, that we look at. And so it is in a way to assess the world and assess yeah. others around us mm -hmm. and uh, things, objects, and so on and so forth. And so absolutely, yeah. our emotional assessments play an, an important role. Our impression and associations that we develop over time are unique to each of us, yet we can recognize general meanings and emotions. When we explore the feeling of a piece of art or music, we can possibly connect closer to the artist behind it. The perception of the art is always our own, but the feeling can be shared. Our auditory journey through science, art, music, and the human mind does not have the answers to our questions. It is the start of a conversation, thoughts, and new ideas. I hope you, the listener, 
are inspired to explore your own perception and become aware. Sights and Sounds, an exploration of human imagination, creation, and deception. This episode of Artscape could not have been made possible without Dr. A. Schloss, professor in the UVic Computer Music Department, Dr. R. Tonks, professor in the UVic Psychology Department, Mish Beam, local performative and visual artist, Laura Gildner, local audiovisual artist, Christine White, local audiovisual artist and performative artist. The beautiful public of Victoria, British Columbia, executive producer Katie Sage, producer Pascal Sabine Ricard. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to Artscape and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Artscape has been made possible with the generous support from the BC Arts Council.